Well, hey, I'm Josh. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Staff would love to meet you. I tucked my shirt in today, which means this is a serious talk. Also cut my hair and shaved my beard. That's because of head lice. And so that, that's a joke. I didn't really. Um, if you're brand new, really, really glad you're here. Um, here's how it usually works. Uh, we teach it what's called a series. You'll see it up above me, the series we've been in for a long time now. This is Week eight, the final week, so if you've leaned in there for the whole thing, good job. Lots and lots of material. Um, and so typically we teach in a series because it's just one big idea that just takes us multiple weeks, multiple sets of scriptures in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, kind of work through. And So here has been kind of the guiding uh, belief thought process in this series, and here's what it is. A creed is simply a set of beliefs that guide your life. Don't be a Christian to have creeds. We all have creeds. The reason you wore what you wore today, the reason you brushed your teeth this morning, the reason you cut your hair, the reason you set out um, whatever you're going to make for dinner later on, whatever those things are, those are just set of beliefs you have that kind of guide your life, and we all have them. And here's kind of been the suspicion that we've been operating under for the last seven weeks, now week eight, um, is this. Uh, if you were to to assess or grade your creed, the, the, the creed by which you live in. Here's, here's what I, I'm suspicious of, and suspicious of it for myself too. Um, that uh, whatever, you would, whatever grade you'd give yourself on how your life works, how it all kind of plays out, you would say, we would say, all of us would say, that there's room for improvement. Whether that's an A minus, B plus, C minus, D, F, whatever it is, we all would say there's, there's something that we still long for that we haven't quite Found. And here's kind of the uh, metaphor I want you to see. It's kind of a harsh one that we'll finish up with today. And um, what I see is happening in our world, uh, in your life, my life, uh, throughout our culture, it's like all of us have been climbing some ladder, right? The older you get, the higher the ladder is. And um, we even use this, you know, term in, in the business world, the, the corporate ladder, right? And you know, this ladder you've been climbing and climbing and climbing. And uh, the older you get, maybe you've gotten to a point where you go, finally I made it to the top of the ladder, right? Uh, let's call it the roof. So you've gotten on the roof, right? You've been working, 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 and you've gotten to this roof. And you stand up on the roof and you go, hum, this isn't the roof I thought I was climbing up onto, right? And once you get to that roof, once we get to that roof, we're kind of, uh, we have a predicament. And we've got a couple options. We either do the hard work of climbing back down the roof or climbing back down the ladder, then moving the ladder and trying to figure out what roof we're actually trying to climb up onto, or um, both metaphorically, figuratively, or, you know, literally. Many of us have gotten on that roof and said, what's the point? And jumped off. And some of us have done that in the way we've wrecked our lives. Uh, What we've looked at over the last several weeks, over and over again, just the... The double of, uh, and triple, depending on what age bracket you're talking about, suicide rates. And there's just a lot of hopelessness. And so all of us are trying to figure out how to enjoy life. And all of us are having quite completely uncovered it. C.S. Lewis says it this way. If you find in this world that there's nothing that can satisfy, right? So all of us, A minus, B plus. There's just something more that we're looking for. Our marriage didn't do it. That job didn't do it. The kids didn't do it. The degree didn't do it. If you find this world, there's nothing that can satisfy. I love the word he uses this, and he says perhaps. It's not judgy. It's not condemning, but perhaps you were meant for a different world. And this whole premise of this series is that is 100% accurate. You were created for a different world. And every time you shed a tear, every time you feel sorrow, that is a reminder that this world that we currently live in isn't the world you're designed for, right? When you are sad, when you grieve, your, your body and your mind are telling you there's it's not supposed to be this way, right? And so the belief is, and what we've believed so long is we've got to climb the ladder, climb the ladder to find that world, obtain that world, get those things. And here's the beautiful thing about this idea of the Jesus Creed, right? The, this idea is not that Jesus is telling you to find a different ladder, find a different roof. It's actually going, no, 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 no. You're, you've been looking for a different world, but because you can't get to it, you can't obtain it, the reality is Jesus actually shows up and brings it to you. Right? So this isn't, uh, perhaps if this world, if you find nothing in this world can satisfy, then perhaps you're meant for a different world. And then ethereally, we think, way off in the future, maybe one day we'll get that. And he's going, no, 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 no. The story of the gospel is Jesus actually steps down and brings that to us. And he says a couple of different things. He says in the gospels that he, um, that the enemy, the one who has, uh, you know, really, really confused and complicated this world, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says it this way, but I, Jesus, have come to give you. That means he's bringing it. He's showing up. 
He's the one showing up at your door with all this gift. I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. Right? Towards the end of his life, right before he's about to be arrested for declaring he's God, put up on a Roman cross and murdered for that belief. And then uh, before he's going to come back to life to prove everything he says was true, one of the last things he says, he says, hey, hey guys, uh, this is John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We go, yeah, that's a, our hearts are troubled. He's going, no, no, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says this, believe in God. Believe that there actually is a creator and designer. That there really is a deity who loves you and sees you. <coughs> Excuse me. Believe in God. And he says this, believe also in me. And he gives us this beautiful analogy. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. This is the house you're supposed to live in, right? Many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be also for all eternity. And you know how to get there. And one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, goes, Thomas, goes, no, no, no. We don't know how to get there. We're not sure how to get this, this, this creed, Jesus. We're not sure how to do it. And he says, hey, hey, hey. John 14, 6. He goes, I'm the way. The way, meaning if you're looking for this life that you haven't quite found, it's in Jesus. I'm the way. Then he says, I'm the truth, meaning this isn't some feeling you have. You don't get your own personal truth. There really is a true north. There is true, and it's not some idea or belief system. It's a person. He goes, I am the way. I'm the truth. And then he says something even more bold. He goes, I'm the life, meaning everything you're looking for is going to be found not in the next job, not in the next spouse, but it's going to be found in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes even a bolder claim. He says, and no one gets to the Father, except through me. So, uh, good news and bad news here. This is, I don't want to be too dogmatic in this, because if you're you're new to this faith system, it's going to sound a little bit arrogant. The good news is, is there is a way to find all that you're looking for. Uh, But the bad news is, it's only found in Jesus. And that sounds really close-minded, especially that I am the way, the truth, and life. And I'd go, this is not Jesus being um, exclusive. It's just him being specific. He's given you actual directions to how to find the things that you're looking for, and it's found in him. And so the invitation for the last seven weeks is, what would it look like to actually follow Jesus? And so when we think about a creed, a set of beliefs that guide your life, here's what we're really talking about and kind of working through. At the, at the base level with the creed, the, kind of the, the foundational thing is you go, a set of beliefs that guide your life. That's talking about actions or behaviors. And so for the last several weeks, a couple of months now, We've been talking about behaviors, meaning there is a way by which we can live that can bring us joy and hope and fulfillment, not later, but now. Like it's available to you now. Jesus is saying he came to give you life and life to the fullest now, not next week, not next month, not next year. There's something you can access. And you go, well, how in the world do you get that? Well, what's nice, the Bible points it out, and then psychology and sociology and all these different branches of, you know, academics have kind of latched on to what the scriptures have already said. And we all know that the way by which you change your behaviors isn't just get up one day and say, I want to do something different, right? You've tried that. You did the New Year's resolutions. The way by which you change your behaviors is actually pretty elementary, but really hard. It's first by changing your beliefs, right? Your beliefs determine your behaviors, what you believe. Remember the reason you brushed your teeth this morning? That's a behavior was because you don't want to go to the dentist or you don't want to interact with someone and your breath smell, right? The reason you're going to work tomorrow, that's a behavior, is because you have some belief. you got to pay your mortgage. And so at some point, we have to go, well, how in the world do we change our beliefs? Well, that's really, really neat. And the way that Jesus tells us in, in John the Baptist, one of the forerunners in the, the New Testament, declaring Jesus is coming and ushering in this new way. He says, repent for the kingdom of God, this kingdom that you've been looking for. If perhaps this world, if there's nothing in this world that can satisfy, perhaps you're meant for a different world. That's the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of God is either near or at hand. That word repent literally means change your mind or change your thoughts or change the way you think. And so for the last seven weeks, now week eight, here's what we're trying to figure out is how in the world do we renovate or renew our mind, change the way we think, so therefore we could change our uh, beliefs and therefore maybe live life a little differently, respond to our marriages a little differently, respond to our kids a little differently, see work and see all of our resources and all of our money differently as a result of that. And so, haven't been with us for a while. That's what's been going on. A couple things I'd point out. If this intrigued you today, you can go back to clcfamily.church. You can listen to the last seven weeks of this. Uh, so there's sermons each week that we kind of cover this. And then, every week during the middle of the week, we do kind of what's called overtime. It's a podcast where the stuff that didn't make it to the sermon, we cover. And if you've got any questions, you can write on the back of that little program you have or email overtime at CLC Family. And on Tuesday, Pastor Ben and I, we walk through those questions. We record both the video and audio, and you can listen to that as well. So, got some questions about this? 
uh, be a really, really good way to engage in that. So that's available to you as well, if it intrigues you. But this is completely standalone. You don't need all the other stuff in the past for this to matter to you today. So um, a couple weeks ago, we really talked about our thoughts. How do we figure out our thoughts, right? Um, how do we determine what those are? And then last week, we really said, okay, how can you know your beliefs? What we looked at here was the way that you know your beliefs is based on your feelings. Kind of look at your feelings. And today, 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 our energy and time is going to be spent talking about our actual behavior. So for Christians, what is that, the actual behavioral change, the behavioral modification? That should result of our thoughts and beliefs changing. And if you're brand new to this thing, feel free to spectate. Definitely going to be worth your time. And uh, so hang in there. Now, what's interesting is I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking, okay, I've been teaching this now seven weeks. And it would make sense. Um, uh, yeah, so... If I were a drug dealer, I'm not. Just <laughs> be clear there. You know, one of the things they'd say is, uh, you know, real drug dealers be like, I'm smoking what I'm selling, meaning whatever the product they believe in, right? And I'm not saying that. Not, this is not going to happen. But it makes sense that if this is how it actually works, right, that I should actually be applying this and practicing it. And there should be some fruit from this, right? So that I'm just standing here and going, here's what you should do, but I'm not doing that. So I've been, I've been working really hard on these things the last eight weeks. And in fact, I told you last week, I think it was a nine o'clock service. They're the ones who laughed inappropriately at me. Um, I was talking about these beliefs and feelings. And one of the things I said is, you might not know this, but I struggle with anxiety. And they all giggle. Like, I didn't know it was that evident, right? And so um, it was, it's okay. I can handle it. I got uh, a little bit of thick skin. Um, and so, but there's this thing that I really, really do struggle with anxiety, thoughts, right? Uh, as Seth Godin says it this way, uh, well, you'll continue to hear me define it this way because I think it's a beautiful definition. He says anxiety is failing in advance, right? Coming up with a bad solution, coming up with the worst case scenario of it, and boy, am I good at that. And I'm going, wait, I'm supposed to be walking in this Jesus creed. I shouldn't be doing that. And luckily the scriptures are pretty clear. And uh, Philippians chapter four, this is Paul, one, uh, kind of one of the big writers in the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about him today, but um, he writes in Philippians chapter four that he actually says rejoice in the Lord he says, always. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he goes, and again, I say rejoice. Okay, didn't hear you the first time, Paul. And then he says, D- uh, be anxious about nothing. Well, that's not very good. Because I'm the pastor telling you this is the way you should live. And I'm anxious about stuff. And so I've been reading through that passage. And then it says, be anxious about nothing. But then it goes on to say, hey, so that's the things I got to think. Okay, there needs to be some new beliefs. What should I do? And so, and he says, but instead, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, and I said this this week, uh, present these things to the Lord, Right? And then later in that same passage, it says, think about things that are good and right and noble. And then this is what it says at the end of it, right? It says, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice this. It doesn't say peace will be with you. It says God with his peace are coming in. Not that he'll just give you peace, but he'll usher in himself, right? And I'm going, well, if that's true, then I got to not, okay, why am I anxious? I can't be anxious. What's the belief that God actually wants to be with me? And there's some behaviors. What are the behaviors I should do? Well, I should actually have thanksgiving and gratitude in my life, right? So I've been working on that. In fact, I, uh, my daughter, my middle, uh, Amelia, we call her middle uh, mainly because at some point she's going to have to go through counseling for it. So we just want to get through that first layer. She's like, I'm middle. Oh, okay. And I want to save 300 bucks for the first three sessions, whatever it is, right? Um, this is a joke. Uh, but uh, Amelia and I are very similar in that we have lots and lots of feelings, lots and lots of feelings. And we have lots and lots of words that talk about lots and lots of feelings, right? And so she deals with anxiety and uh, a couple of nights ago, three, four nights ago, and she would be okay with me sharing this with you, so it's not a secret. I mean, I wouldn't ask her about it because she didn't want to talk to you about it, but, I mean, it's, it's real. Um, so she, uh, she really, really struggles with anxiety, and a couple of nights ago, she was kind of panicking a little bit, and so I kind of crawled in bed with her, right? It's 8 o'clock at night, and I crawled in bed, and I'm just sharing with her, hey, hey, I get this, same thing, I got thoughts, and, you know, the, this is a result of these beliefs, and my belief is i got to fix all this, but here's what the Bible says, that we actually can bring this to God, and what he wants us to do is just be thankful, right? And so um, I was telling her the things that I've been thankful for. So one of the things I told her is like recently, Amelia, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, <laughs> it's so funny, I'm sharing it with you, Joyce Ross. If you don't know Joyce, Joyce is our chief resource officer here. She is steady. She's the one to make sure the lights are on, make sure that uh, staff gets paid, the mortgage is paid. I mean, she is just steady, been here for a while. I'm not going to tell you what year she was born. She would not appreciate me telling you that, but she's been here for a little while, right? Um, and so a couple weeks ago, she went to Hawaii just so inappropriate of her. We need her here. And um, I had a lot of anxiety that week. And then Joyce comes back, my rock's back. And so I was telling Amelia, Joyce is back. She's steady. And so when I think about our church and its operations, all those things, I think about Joyce Ross and the kind of the confidence of that. So I was telling her that. She's like, oh yeah, I love Joyce. And then I was like, you know what else I think about Amelia? 
I think about how lucky I am to be your dad. And that's not like everyone trying to butter up. I mean this. Like, I cannot believe the gift of the children I get. If you know my kids, frankly, you probably agree with me. I mean, they're pretty special. Just really special. Love interacting with them. And I was like, Amelia, one of the things I say often is, so happy to be your, your dad. And she's like, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll think about. I'll think about how happy I am that you're my dad too. And I'm like, that's brilliant, girl. And you should share it with everyone. <laughs> and I was like, and there's a third thing, Amelia. There's a third thing I'm really, really thankful about. And then I was telling her about our church and the fact that they have a place that they're loved and cared for. And um, if you're new here, I've been here 30 months and what's gonna happen today, which is a little different than usual, is I'm gonna do two things that I typically don't ever do or very rarely do from the stage. And one is I'm, going to talk about these thoughts and celebration, right? Just to be very candid with you, I'm very bad at celebration. Um, and there's a reason for that. And I think it's because there's always a, a mountain to climb, a hill to tackle, a ditch to fill in, right? Or dig. And there's just, in, in my world, I, there's a lot of broken people in it that, I, that matter a ton to me. And so every single day I wake up thinking about how do we get this good news in people's ears. That's both in our community and all across the, uh, the globe, right? And so it's real easy for me to wake up the next day and just get going on that and not pause to think about things that are good and right and noble and celebrate. And so just telling her how much I'm just really thankful for our church and thought, man, I, we just don't do that much here. And so just pause. And so this is new uh, for us. And really this is trying to model this thing. And just been thinking a lot about this week of Thanksgiving, just how gracious God has been to us. Like even a couple of weeks ago, thinking about thousands of people walking through woods, being loved on by our community, a bunch of people who have no idea that God loves them. A lot of them have no idea, and they're just showing here to get some candy, and we get to love them. And there's kind of a guiding principle in that, that people always return to the last place they feel loved. If you know much about the scriptures, Luke chapter 15, you see the story of the prodigal son, and it's just that. A kid who goes away in the middle of his pain and sorrow, he goes, where was I loved? Dad loved me, and he comes back. So we know that people have chaos in their life, and we want to be a place that loves our community really well. And so really, really pleased about that. And then even last weekend, thinking about thousands, hundreds, thousands, I don't even know what the numbers are, of people showing up in this building uh, for a craft festival and being loved and cared for. And uh, every single weekend, this weekend included, there's 750 to 850 people kind of showing up here on a weekend across the way in Kid Zone this weekend. There'll be 150 to 200 little kiddos, 150, 175 that we get to love on. And I was thinking about um, Lincoln University. You've been seeing some slides. You'll hear more about it next week. Of, um, they, have, uh, they have the end of the semester Christmas party. And last year we got to give 7,000 cookies to them. This year we're aiming to do 10,000. They, and their students were surveyed at the end of the year of the most significant things that happened for them in terms of student activities last year. And at the top of the list for them was being loved on by their community and being able to take all these cookies to their finals and to their studying with them. And, and then I think about being able to help move all the Lincoln University freshmen in. And I just want to point out, guys, like, it's so easy for me just to be thinking about the next thing and not pause and go, those things aren't normal, Right? a predominantly Caucasian church, and, and engaging and investing and loving a, a, the oldest historically black college and university in the nation, and we get to go and help them move in, connect with their families, and Lincoln University has invited us to pray over every room, give every single student a care package that tells them that they're loved by us and loved by God. Like, this is not a Christian school. This is a liberal arts school that has invited this church to be able to do those things. And now I was thinking about, this is, we've got to do that twice, and Thinking about next weekend, uh, first Friday, this will be the third time we'll pull in that big showmobile trailer in the, the big yellow mug, and we'll park itself in the middle of a, you know, a state highway. They'll close down the roads, and there'll be first Friday, and thousands of people will be there. And we'll pull up and set up that trailer, and we will sing songs over and to this community. And they're Christmas songs. And I'm not talking about Run, Run, Rudolph, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We will be singing about the Messiah, that Emmanuel, that God literally shows up and brings his kingdom to us. We'll get to sing and worship the God of the universe in the middle of the city in a time right now where there's all this vitriol and all this America and Christianity under attack. And there, you see it all over, the, all over the globe, definitely all over the, our, our, our country. And for a moment, we'll all pause together as our church leading in worship. And our entire community will sit there and sing Silent Night together. And it's just real easy for, this will be the third year that we've gotten to do this. And it's just, it's just real easy to kind of bypass those things. To think about a church that's almost doubled in size in the last couple of years. And think about next um, month being able to baptize and dedicate some babies. And also see some grown-ups 
be immersed as a baptism, declare this good news. And it's just real easy to, in my world, just to not really think or appreciate that. And so it makes sense this week, as we think about Thanksgiving, that we'd pause for a second and go, okay, that's not normal, guys. This isn't normal. Even think about a Saturday night service. Last night, there were 110 or so folks in this room. Got some kiddos across the way. And like on a Saturday night, people are coming into this building and worshiping Jesus. And the average church size in America right now is 89 people. 89 people, which is 89 people. And you go, okay, what has God been doing here and why has he done it? I think it's really, really important. Pause and celebrate. And it can't be that God likes our church better than other churches, right? It's like, it's not that. So uh, Andy Stanley, pastor at North Point Church uh, in, in Atlanta, he says, if you don't know why it's working when it's working, you won't know how to fix it when it breaks. And so it would make sense if we'd pause for a second and go, okay, what's God been up to here and why has he, been, why has he decided to do that here? Because I'm so focused on what's next, it's kind of, it, it's very rare that we sit and pause and go, well, why has God done this? And so I've been really working through that, and um, here's what I think, okay? I, I think it's because of you guys. I think it's because of you guys. I wholeheartedly mean that. I think we've got a good staff, really excited about all those things, but I think ultimately it's you guys. And here's the principle that I want you to see throughout the scriptures and what you're going to see today in Luke chapter 18 and 19. When God's faithfulness, that he always is doing what he says he's going to do, he's always bending and shaping things for our good and his glory. When God's faithfulness, which is just marching down straight onto a path to all eternity, when God's faithfulness, which is just strong and consistent and true, when God's faithfulness intersects, when all of a sudden, intersects with a bunch of people who go, we want on that interstate. We, when, when God's people merge into that, right? When God's faithfulness collides with our faith every single time, every single time throughout the scriptures in our own life, uh, miraculous things happen. When God's faithfulness and our faith, when they intersect, and so it's really beautiful that like God is moving down a way and he's inviting people into it. When a bunch of people bring everything they have, when their faith, with all their resources, intersects with God every single time, you see miraculous things happen in the scriptures and throughout our life. And even when you see when God continues to bless and continue to do, to do more in life, there's actually a really specific reason for it. In fact, uh, you can see it in the scriptures. You see Jesus here tell it in some parables. When people are good stewards of what God's entrusted them with, God gives them more. And we're going to see that at the end of the passage today. And I think there's some evidence of that even if you look in our culture particularly. I don't want to spend too much time talking about business and all that kind of stuff. But there's, when I think about this in terms of godly cultures, I think of two specific organizations that are really, really experiencing some high-level growth even in the middle of recessions and the end of the early aughts, 2007, 2008. Still see it. You can go back 30, 40 years in the middle of every up and down. There's two organizations that I'd go, God has continued to increase 10, 15, 20%. One of them's Chick-fil-A. To be honest with you, I don't like Chick-fil-A. I don't like their food. I'm always hungry when I finish there. I know you like Christian chicken, whatever that is. That's really good. This isn't a jab at Chick-fil-A. I think it's a great culture. I just don't like their food. Um, but I love the Kathy family. And if you were to ask them what their um, mission was from day one to Kathy, he'd say one thing. Say one thing. Uh, you know, it's not that he didn't invent the chicken. He just invented the chicken sandwich and that kind of stuff. What he would say is that his mission has always been to be a good steward of all that God's entrusted them with. Right? Still not open on Sundays. Still even in the middle of these... Uh, recession, you see 10, 12% growth. And another one you can uh, kind of pay attention to is uh, the Green family with Hobby Lobby. You just see a company, and again, you can ask Steve Green, you can ask him about his father, and he would wholeheartedly say that their mission is not to make a bunch of money, but to be good stewards of what God's entrusted with. So you go, how in the world does this happen? And I would say it has everything to do with us going, God, it's all yours. How do we use what we've been given for your kingdom? So one of the things that makes sense that we do, and I'm not very good at it, I want to do it today, is just pause with some gratitude and celebration and go, the reason God continues to do good things is because you continue to give yourselves and your resources to him we get to see uh, miraculous things happen. And now at least the second thing we usually don't talk about, which we are today. And that's money. So I've been here 30 months. I don't like talking about it. It makes me really comfortable. I think it's because I grew up in the church and I've experienced the manipulation that comes with money, right? Um, in fact, you can trace back church history 2,000 years ago, even when you see what happens in synagogues when Jesus was there. While there were some other guiding factors, one of the guiding factors was money. Uh, Jesus and declaring that he's the way, the truth, and the life and telling people they could worship in spirit and truth. It kind of, kind of took away the need that people had to come into some synagogue or building and listen to some rabbi talk. And every time they entered that building, they had to pay a temple tax. So as these people started following Jesus, one of the things that happened is um, it became uh, harder to sustain the synagogue. And for these rabbis, they were losing influence and affluence. And so you just see throughout church history where money 
uh, complicates the church. Even when you think about scandals, you got two different pieces. You got immoral behavior, and then you got the cover up, right? Well, what's the cover up about? It's about fear that could happen that could damage the church, and therefore, if people leave the church, guess what else goes with them? Their wallets and pocketbooks. Right? And so you want to see some of the complications throughout church history. Just follow the money. And so it seems weird to talk about it. And I just grew up in the church world where there'd be this battle where someone would talk about money. And it usually came at a time when the budget was down. Well, lo and behold, because God is both, uh, his words are both timeless and timely, we actually are talking about the church and money in a time where our budget's down. So I want you to hear me wholeheartedly. Some of you care deeply about this. Our budget's 1.5 million. That's what it is in a year. That's a lot of money, guys. And we take every penny serious, every single one of them. And understand that you guys are entrusting God with a lot and we, by entrusting us. And so we take that real serious. And right now, a large budget, and we're down 6 7%. So that means by the end of the year and the end of December, that means we'd be down about $100,000. We have reserves, all that kind of stuff. But some of you love your church and want to know those things and don't want to hide it from you. But this passage and this talk has nothing to do with this. Hear me. I am not trying to convince you to write the budget right now or write a check. Right? I want you to know what's going on. I don't want you to hear later, oh, they're in a budget thing. There's Josh talking about money. Those two things are completely separate issues. I want you to be aware of it. But here's kind of how it plays out. We kind of chart through the scriptures. And one of the commitments I've made to the Lord and to our church is we will talk to things as the scriptures point them to us. And so we... Um, I would point out the scriptures are both timeless and timely, meaning they matter for all times, and God tends to do things in a pretty timely manner. So here we are talking about some money, but here's what I want you to understand about money. Money is not the resource, it's an a resource, and we're going to basically see in this passage where there's basically two case studies on money and on resources, two different affluent wealthy people, and they're going to respond two different ways on what they do with their resources. Money is just one of them. Your time is another. Your family is another. All the things that you have, your house, your car, your clothes, your food, those are all resources, and so is your influence, right? And so the reason that you see Jesus over and over again talk about money in the scriptures is he says no man can serve two masters, right? And for many of us, money is one of our masters. You go, well, why in the world is that? Well, it's always been this reason, and here's what I would say. Um, in fact, he says, where, and then he also says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He's not saying money's your treasure. He's saying that money is the conduit by which you gain your treasure. And so I think about what our treasure is, personally what my treasure is, my idol. Here's, here's what I'd say this, and here's what I think for many of us. Most of you are over trying to be really, really rich, right? Maybe you had a dream of that earlier. Uh, kiddos aren't even interested in rich now. They're interested in fame, which is a whole different sermon for a whole different time. But um, most of us are over this thing of we want tons and tons of affluence. Here's where we've arrived, okay? We've said this. We don't want to be rich. We just want to be comfortable. That's how you say it. I'm from the South, so I just say comfortable. There's an extra syllable that you guys add that's just a waste of time, but I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable or comfortable, right? And here's what I'm saying when I say that, and I think what you're saying too. It means I just don't want to depend on anybody or anything else, right? I, don't want, I, I just want to take care of myself. I don't want to have to think about calling my in-laws. I don't want to think about getting a loan. I don't want to think about work. I just want to, I just want to have my own little world and be in control of my own little world. And what we're saying when we say we want to be comfortable, what we're saying our idol is is control. And money is the way by which we control things, right? Uh, money gives us control over our comfort level, over our security, over our access to things, right? And so what we're really struggling with is control. And here's the problem with control. It is a 100% wholehearted, absolute illusion. Just not in control. Ask adults who cannot get their kids to behave the way they want them to. Right? Ask the person who just went to the doctor last week and got a diagnosis that they are shocked by and they eat healthy, they exercise, they do all those things. Ask the spouse whose husband uh, exercised and ate healthy all the day in the middle of a jog, had cardiac arrest. You all know the stories. Some of the fittest people in their early 40s, they're out running and all of a sudden, in a moment, they just kill over. This isn't to scare you. It's just the reality. There's so much stuff that we try to control and the reality is we control all this stuff and then lo and behold, some outlier outside of our control just wreaks havoc on our life. And so when Jesus talks and addresses money, he's not really addressing money. He's addressing what's going on in our heart and in our heart we just want to control. You see, in our mind we think we can control things, but the reality is deep down we have a belief that goes, we really know that we can't. So we're going to control everything we can and hope that the, that the, you know, whatever the other stuff that's left a chance just happens and, you know, end up lucky for us. And so we have this belief that we've got to control all we can because there are things in our life that are outside of our control. But if we can control all this, then the statistics say that we can be okay. 
And the reality of what Jesus is going is, look, you're, you're trying to control all these things, but the reality is, you can't even fix your own problems, your own marriage, your own work life, your own thought life. And so either you're going to climb to the top of the roof, and you're going to get there and go, I thought I was in control of this whole plan, and here I am on a roof I don't want to be on. And at that point, you're going to have to figure out, do I jump off the roof, do I climb down? And I would say, neither. Jesus has already climbed up onto that same roof and is meeting you there and wants to show you what to do. And one of the ways by which he does that is communicates with us on money and possession. So we're going to see these two stories, these two case studies of two different people who respond two different ways to money. And here's what you're going to see with them. I want you to see it before we get in it. And here's the thing is we're going to see what needs to happen in some adjustments of our thoughts. Here's how it works with our resources. One of the things, particularly for those of us Christians, that's what I said, if you're not, you can spectate. It'd be nice for you to, if you're not in that realm, to kind of understand what, what, what we think. It's worthwhile. Um, one of the things we do as Christians is we ask this question. How much should I give? Right? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? How much is it that God to be happy with? Like, uh, there's this question, right? That's one of our thoughts. What should we give? Now, I'm going to show you today. I think there's a better question to ask. I want you to know it ahead of time. It's the wrong question. It's not how much should you give. better question to ask is how much should you keep, okay? The other question that a lot of us work through in, in our world, particularly when we get in the woe is us moments, we really, really turn our face and focus on why don't we have what we don't have? Why don't you have the marriage you want? Why don't you have the food you want? Why don't you have the job you want? Why don't you have the house you want? Why don't I have what I don't have? That's what a lot of thoughts swirling in this room, right? Better question to ask, and you'll see it in, this, in these passages, is instead of asking, why don't you have what you don't have? Here's a better question. Why has God given you what he's given you, right? And so we're going to look at these new thoughts, new beliefs, and therefore some new behaviors. And so we're going to see Jesus interact with these two really affluent people. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. You can turn there, but let me kind of set up the scene. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, Bible split, split up Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is these 39 books. And um, in a really quick nutshell, the, all 39 books are getting at helping us have some uh, better understanding of our thoughts and beliefs. And so the big thought of the Old Testament is, do you think you can fix yourself? And the answer for all the people in the Old Testament immediately was yes. And then it became, uh-oh, we can't. And then there became a second response, but if you would give us rules, then we know how to fix ourselves. Guess what? God gave them rules. Then they realized, nope, rules don't fix us. And they go, you know what we need? We need some judges. Help us interpret these rules. So what does God do? He gives them judges. And guess what? Judges don't fix them either. Okay, God, you know what we really need then? We need kings. Other nations have kings. If you give us kings, they'll help us follow the rules. God gives them kings. Guess what? It didn't fix things either. Why? Because there was a false belief. And the false belief was there is nothing in this world that can fix us. And so the hope of the Old Testament and the intention of the Old Testament was to declare that we are unfixable on our own. Unfixable, right? So when I was little, my dad was kind of a jack of all trades. Uh, and when he needed to fix something, particularly a car, here's what he would do. So funny, actually. He would, we'd go to the local auto zone, advanced auto. Some of you remember this. And my dad would go down front and he'd find the Chilton manual. He wouldn't buy it, by the way. He'd find this Chilton manual and he'd open it up. And he'd sit there, and he couldn't take a picture with his phone. There wasn't that. And he would read how to fix the brakes, fix the, you know, water pump, whatever it is. And then we would go home and fix it, right? Or if, uh, if then they started getting more clever, and they put that plastic wrapping on the outside of the Chilton manual so you couldn't do that. Then he would call all of his friends who had similar cars to see if they had one, right? And if none of that worked, then we would go, I mean, could you not? Dad and I would get up, and we'd go to the library, and my dad would check out a book. I can remember him checking out a book on how to put a, a, you know, a bathroom in the basement, all these kind of things, right? And so that's how it kind of worked. He's like, there's something wrong that can't be fixed. And so therefore I need to go back to the original designer who created the manual to show us how it could be fixed. Now we're different now. We don't do that. We just go to YouTube, right? Which is really complicated. It actually frustrates me. I think it should be called HowTube. I've sent them emails and go, I think you should call it HowTube because that's why I use it, right? So you go in and you find the video with the most views and then you watch it and figure out why your Jeep's making that noise, why your car light's coming on, whatever it is, right? And you go and do that. So what do you do when you do that? You're literally going in and saying, I don't know how to fix this, but I'm gonna look to someone who can and I'm gonna follow their lead. So the whole Old Testament is going, you can fix this. And if you want to fix it, the best way to fix it is to look to the original designer and follow their lead. Old Testament. The New Testament is, guess what? The original designer steps onto this planet and goes, I am the original designer. I am the son of God, meaning I'm God's son. And I'm the son of man, meaning I'm the one who created the whole world, saw you in it. And I'm going to model to you a better way to live. And so when the New Testament starts, there's these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And they're all biographies about Jesus' life. And they're capturing these moments that Jesus is interacting with people and showing them that there's a better way to live. And in all the places, there is this invitation that he invites people into. Not to come to him front and ask Jesus in your heart, not to pray a prayer. The invitation that you see throughout the, the Bible, throughout the New Testament is one. And the one is always this, only invitation. And it's follow me. He's going to invite people to follow him. Here's how I'm going to live, and you follow me. Do as I do from here all the way into eternity. I'm the one who has access to eternity. You want access to eternity? Then you've got to follow me, right? And so, in the, so these different writers are people who walked with Jesus and wrote down a story. And one, Luke, is a guy who was an investigative journalist, went to eyewitnesses and wrote it down. And so in Luke chapter 18, he's going to tell us how Jesus models this. And by the way, invite someone to follow him. Follow him, right? And so what we see here in Luke chapter 18, what's just happened is Jesus has just uh, been doing some teaching, and he's actually teaching on prayer in a complicated way. He's telling these weird stories about like a persistent widow, and it's all sorts of confusing because this person keeps going, God, I believe you're the source of all my hope. And, but you haven't met that need yet, and Jesus is going, just keep asking. If you believe that the only solution to your problem is me, if you believe the only solution to the problem is God, then your best option is to continue to ask him. And as you ask him, you're continuing to model this faith that eventually will merge with God's faithfulness and you will see something miraculous happen. So he's given that, that passage and explained it. Then immediately after that, these little kiddos come up to him. Now imagine they're snotty nose, a couple of them have RSV, whatever it is. They're like wiping it and they're sneezing and coughing and they're not covering their mouth. And they're all coming up to Jesus and all of his disciples, rightfully so, are going, Get away, dirty kids. You're bothering him, right? And so they're like, they're kind of building a wall around these little kids are so idealistic and they want to connect to Jesus. And they're going, no, no, you can't have access to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them and goes, no, no, no. These are the folks whose thoughts are pure, whose beliefs are that somehow I can solve this. And whose behaviors are literally doing the very thing I'm asking everybody else to do, which is seek me while I can be found. Have access to me while I'm here, right? And he's saying, so this is exactly how people should pursue me. So please don't stop them because they're actually modeling what I wish everyone else would do, right? And as that's happening, this ruler, this wealthy dude with lots of influence, lots of affluence engages Jesus. Now, this guy has all the control and comfort that most people have in the world. He's got, he's got, you know, coffers filled with all the grain he needs. He has lots of clothes. He has lots of money. He has everything he needs except for one thing. He is suspicious that there is an afterlife, right? Which is interesting, you know, we say heaven gained another angel, you know, they're resting in peace, they're in a better place now, right? We don't know what that means, but we all say it at funerals. He's trying to go, I believe this, but I'm not sure exactly why I believe it. Hey, Jesus, how do you gain access to this? That's what he's about to ask, and we're going to see a really, really interesting story that's going to be complicated at first glance, but definitely worth our time to read. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Here's what it says. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, here it is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe that my soul was made forever, right? That part of you that it will always be. You cannot escape it. Even jumping off the roof will not escape that part of you. Hey, Jesus, I believe there is this eternal life, and you're the teacher. Could you please teach me on how to get that? Now watch Jesus' response. He's going to dig around in his thoughts for a little while. Now usually what you see is Jesus asks questions when he's asked a question, and that's what he's going to do first. Which is, why do you call me good? Oh, that's an interesting thought. You call me good. You call me good teacher. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's a good except God alone. So he's kind of picking up that and going, ah, here's the thing. Let me just go and draw the line. There's everybody in the world. That's bad people. That's broken people. That's people who can't fix themselves. And then there's a line. So all of humanity for all time exists in this realm. And then there's God who exists in this realm. And by the way, I'm God, so I also exist in this realm. And the only way you can get access from this side to this side is actually through me, right? And so he's, po- he's picking at this little man going, oh, you're calling me good. Well, why are you calling me good? He's trying to figure out if this guy sees him as God, right? And he knows he doesn't. He just thinks, oh, this guy's buttering me up a little bit. And so Jesus is going to go directly to an answer. Now remember, Jesus very rarely, if ever, gives answers. So the fact that he's going to give an answer here means we really should pay attention to this. And watch what he says. You know the commandments. This is him talking to the rich ruler. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Hey, you know in the Old Testament, uh, there was this thought that you, were, that you could save yourself. And so you were given this list of things that you could do to save yourself. And here's the list, right? Now the goal of the list was to convince you you couldn't actually save yourself. But this guy, hey, you know the rules. You know the rules, so he lists out the rules. 
Watch verse 21. This is what the affluent, influential ruler says. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's what I thought. I thought the way you get eternal life is by behaving really good, having more good days than bad. We still live in that world, a lot of us, right? We think that somehow our behavior determines our destiny. So he has this thought, aha, he's affirming my beliefs. I just got to behave well. Now, the problem with that is Jesus actually doubled down and said, if you hate, you're actually murdering. If you lust, you're actually committing adultery. So he's actually doubled down on these beliefs in the New Testament. This guy doesn't get that. He goes, I've behaved these rules perfect. Watch verse 22. When Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Now, imagine when he hears that, he goes, okay, what's the one thing? What is the one more thing I got to do? I can do that. I got to go to the synagogue more often. What do I got to do, right? Still lack one thing. Now, watch this. You still lack one thing. Sell. Everything, that word is accurate in the Greek. That means everything. That means all of his clothes. That means everything. Everything you have. So this isn't just about money. This is about every resource he has. So everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. There's the invitation. Then come follow me. So he goes, okay, you want eternal life. Uh, That's where your treasure should be, right? You shouldn't just be renovating hotel rooms. That's a waste of your time and energy, right? So uh, your treasure should be in things eternal. I get that. And so if you want your treasure to be things eternal, then there's a couple things. The first thing you have to do is you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you have to follow me. That's the thing, right? And so he says this to him. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. Because remember the first question that a lot of us want to figure out as Christians is how much should we give? (laughs) <laughs> this says 100%. That's not 10%. That's 100%. And see, I've already talked about our budget. So, guys, if you just give everything you have, our budget will be mapped. There's a joke in there, right? That's not what this is about. So you're going, why in the world does he tell them to give everything? Because Jesus is peering into this guy's soul and understanding what his God is, what his idol is. No man can serve two masters. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So he's going, here's the really good news, guys. God does not want your money. The bad news is he wants a whole lot more than that. He wants your heart. And unfortunately, where you spend your money is a direct reflection of where your heart is. And so he's pointing this out and going, you should sell everything you have. And you see this, I want you to see this really important. It says, and give to the poor. No, it says, he doesn't say give to the United Way. It doesn't say give it to the church. Now I'm going, hey, the hope of the world, wholeheartedly believe this, is the local church. Like when I think about all the good our church does and how we're serving our community, I wholeheartedly believe you're going to be disappointed in the next election. Every single one of you, no matter who's elected, at what level, you are going to be disappointed. Whatever happens, it will not solve our problems. It will not end poverty. It will not stop trafficking. It will not stop murder. Those things will not solve those things because you cannot legislate enough behavior modification. So when you look through the history of the world, the very first thing you see is God, when he creates human beings, he sets up an institution. You know what the first ones he set up? Marriage. So he sets up marriage. Then he sets up a second institution family. Then you see throughout the Old Testament, literally within day one, they're taking shots, or day, week three, week four, whatever, they're taking shots at each other. And then the very first family murders, each, one of them murders the other one, right? And so these two institutions that God sets up as the foundation for how we wouldn't be alone, they get corrupted from day one. Then you look at the history of the Old Testament, they are completely corrupted. And so are the kingdoms. So are all the governments. They're all corrupted. They're all dependent on a good king versus a bad king. And by the way, the good king we celebrate is the one who actually had an affair, got his mistress pregnant, and murdered her husband. That's the good king in the Bible. Right? And so there's all this hope put into it. And so there's this whole Old Testament going, it is just corrupt. Then you look at the New Testament when Jesus decides to invade it. He comes back and he makes things right. And he reestablishes an institution that's going to solve it. Now he tells us there's going to be government, but it's not going to solve it. What's the institution that he establishes to solve the problems? The church. The church. The church. The local church empowered by him is the solution to poverty. Is the solution to human trafficking. Is the solution to health care. We can argue all we want about what's going wrong in healthcare. Healthcare's only been around for less than a couple hundred years. You know who's responsible for it before then? The church. Foster care's only been around for a hundred years. You know who's responsible for it first? The church. Even if you look at slavery and the big movement that overcomes it. Some of you have seen the movie Harriet, right? It's the church and God in people making that movement. It wasn't the government. Even you go, well, in England, it was Wilbur, you know, William Wilberforce. Yes, the church. It was the Christ in him that led that movement, not some parliament movement. 
right? It all starts with the church. So the solution for all these things are the church, right? And so this guy's going, no, 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 I just want my own little thing. And he's going, you don't get it. You don't get it. The solution for the poor is actually we give it all to the poor. And so where this gets messed up for us is we now think of the church as an institution, Okay, I give my money to the church, the church solves the problems. In fact, some of the things that come up, and I think they're really good questions. Really good questions. I love that wrestling through them. If you came to the evening with the elders, you would have gotten this a couple, um, a couple weeks ago. So proud of you guys for raising your hand and asking questions. What becomes really evident is we, wanna, we know that you guys want to know what's going on in all things, and we want you to know all things. So we're trying to figure out how to do that. And what else is evident? It's really evident that you want to give your hands and feet and resources in whatever way possible, which is beautiful because that's what the church is supposed to do. But some of the things that come up are, okay, in the past we've done angel tree or Thanksgiving baskets, which are beautiful things, by the way. But when you see this passage, what you, when Jesus says, what I want you to do is I want you to take your resources, and I want you to take them directly to the poor, right? And so the church is more this movement of going, you can do it. You know why? You're the church. And a community of people can help, because we're the church, right? Sorry about losing my voice. You can do it. We can help. And so the, the beauty of some of this and some of the, some of the tension for us is, boy, we like the anonymous. You can know that you can get something for a seven-year-old. They want a bike. They want some shoes. You can go buy that. You can bring it back. But then there's a staff member or someone going, okay, now how do we distribute that? Instead of going, we actually want you to know that person. What would it look like for you to ask your kid's teacher, right? Ask someone, literally, as you're checking out a giant, go, do you know someone who's come through here and needs their groceries paid? Right, that's a lot more uncomfortable, but a lot, a lot more beautiful, right? That where you go, no, this isn't, I give in some way, and I feel good about giving. It's, no, I'm going right to the front lines and meeting the poor where they are. This is why I love what family promised us, that we get to use our building. That part's kind of neat to me, but the fact that you get to have dinner with these folks who are in a bad part in their life and look at them and hear their story and tell them their story matters to you because it matters to God. That's a different thing, because that's not some veil between us and the brokenness of our world. It's going, I've been there too. Boy, I don't know what it's like. You can do it. We can help you, right? And so when Jesus says this, this guy, he says, get rid of, go sell your resources and give them to the poor, not United Way, not even to, in the offering baskets, to the poor. And so you wonder, what is this guy's problem? Is it says, something you have, then come follow me. Watch verse 23, watch what he says. When he heard this, he became very sad because he is very wealthy. So is he upset about his wealth? I don't know. He might be overwhelmed because that's a lot to liquidate. This isn't like I just sell my shoes, get rid of my car, and I'm done. This is a lot to liquidate. So I don't know if he's overwhelmed by the amount he has to liquidate. You understand, we live in a world right now where we pay a lot of money for metal buildings somewhere else to hold our stuff that we haven't seen in two years. Right? And then eventually we get so tired of that stuff, we just let some auctioneer auction it off, and we make TV shows out of it to entertain us. Right? This is all this stuff. And so I don't know if it's about trying to liquidate all that stuff. I don't know if that's the issue. Or if it's that he doesn't actually want to engage with poor people. Or if he really is so sad because his heart and his treasure is his wealth. Regardless of what those things are, what we see in this picture is it says this. He heard this and he became very, very sad. This guy has everything, all the control that he thinks that's false, this illusion, but he has a lot of stuff. This guy has one interaction with the God of the universe and he walks away sad. That money can't buy happiness in that. It can't. And so he walks away sad and Jesus gives us the understanding of what just played out. And he says this in verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so people are like, is that hyperbole? Is that some place in Jerusalem that there's a small place you gotta unpack the camel? I don't know. Here's what I'll tell you is, I don't think it's hyperbole. I think he is saying, rich people cannot get into the kingdom. I think he's saying, a camel, there is no way that a camel gets through the eye of the needle. There is no hocus pocus that can do that, right? You can't like dehydrate the camel. You can't chop it up small enough. You cannot get the camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. That's what he's saying here. You know, I know that's what he's saying because watch verse 26. They go, those heard this. Then uh, who then can be saved? And watch what Jesus says in verse 27. What is impossible with man? He's saying it's impossible. It's possible with God. So a lot we've got to figure out there, and you go, okay, so he's literally saying it's impossible, and you go, what is he saying here then? And here's the, here's the lemma. Oh, I hope you have big boy pants on, because this is going to sting a little bit, and I feel so uncomfortable to do it. If you're new here, boy, I'd love us to be all gracious, but these are the scriptures I want us to understand. And, mm. um, if you can push a button and get heat or cold in your house, or you have enough food to get you through Wednesday, you got a set of clothes you can wear tomorrow, and then a third, another set that you can put on the next day. 
then considering our world standards, you are absurdly wealthy. You're rich. The guy he's talking to doesn't have a microwave. You do. Right? I mean, in our world, most of us, maybe not all of us, but 80, 90% of us in here by world standard, maybe 99%, I don't know. We are really, really rich. And if that's the case, what Jesus is saying is it is impossible for you to get into heaven and be rich. You cannot be rich and get into heaven. You're going, "Uh uh-oh. Well, what are we doing that? No, good news, he says, what's impossible for man is possible for God. Here's what he's getting at. What, he would have, what they would have understood and what we understand is rich comes with a lot of access. Think about it. Let's say you want to go watch the 76ers on courtside, like courtside seats, right? Maybe play the Lakers if you're into that stuff. And um, Those seats are absurdly expensive. I'm talking about 50 grand. So you and a buddy go, you're spending 100 grand, which is more than the majority of us make in a year, Right? So 100 grand on one nice ticket, and there are people who do it all the time. Why? Because they have an, an enormous amount of wealth. So if you look at first century, this guy had enormous wealth. There was not a party he could not get into. There was not access. Because everything, everything has a price tag on it. And if you have infinite amounts of wealth, you can just write the check. And so what he's saying in this picture is, there is not a check you could write that could give you access to the kingdom. So there's no way. You cannot get courtside seats. They are infinitely valuable, and you can't get them. So no matter how rich you are, you don't have access to this place because it is not for sale. Now, we know this, so we understand that. We can't, uh, of course, either you have enough money to do it, which most of us don't, but there isn't a second option. You know what the second option is? You know someone who's already paid for the tickets. You know someone who's already paid for the tickets, right? Some of us have gotten experience access to things that we couldn't afford because someone else has already paid for the access, right? So Jesus is going, yeah, it is impossible for man but the reason I'm inviting you into it is guess who's already paid access to the kingdom? I have. And I've paid access not just for me to come. I've already paid the price for your admission. But you can't write the check. You can't go, okay, let me reimburse you. There's, you can't afford the price that it costs. But it doesn't mean it's not available to you. And you see this guy go, here's the thing. Your treasure's here on this earth. Your treasure's in these resources. And the problem is, the reason I know that you haven't understood the kingdom is because if you understood the kingdom, you would understand why I've given you all those things, which leads to the, the next question. Not how much, should you, how much you should give, but really, how much do you need to keep? Now, immediately after this, Jesus heads to a new town called Jericho. Lots to talk about there in terms of God doing supernatural, ridiculous work to give the Israelites access to this place that was forbidden before. And the way by which it happens is these Israelites hundred years before march around walls and blow a tuba. It makes no sense. And yet they gain access because it was impossible for men, not impossible for God. So now they're in this new place and all of a sudden this other rich person shows up. You might know this rich person. His name is Zacchaeus, right? Uh, He was Jewish, but you would think he was Irish because the song says he was a wee little man. But here's how it goes. Case study number two. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So he's heading to the next place. Right, just, uh, and a man was there, this is Luke 19, verse 1, by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He has all the money in the world, and people hated him, rightfully so. And the reason they hated him is the way by which he gained his wealth is he had the authority of the government to charge whatever he wanted to, to you to take all your money. So the government would have expected 10, 20% of your income, but Zacchaeus could have charged 95 and likely did. So he would have charged people 90 to 95% of their income, made them live on 10, 5 to 10% of it. He would have given 10% or 20% back to the government and he would have lived off the 85% of your income, 80% of your income. And these are hundreds of people. So he has enormous amount of wealth at the oppression of people. So he was hated. There is not a worse profession. People would have rather you be a murderer than hang out with a tax collector. And here Zacchaeus was, and he's gotten to the top of the roof from the ladder and going, this isn't the roof I want to be on. And he hears the suspicions about this guy, Jesus. And watch what happens. Uh, Verse three, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, which is embarrassing and not what grown men do, right? And uh, climbed up in a sycamore tree also not what grown men do, uh, to see him since he was, Jesus was coming that way. So he climbs up in a tree, hikes up his, you know, his long skirt, his robe, and he's up in a tree, a grown man sitting in a tree. This is ridiculous, right? Everybody's noticing this going, who's the ridiculous tax collector? What's he doing up there? Verse five, when Jesus reached his body, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Immediately. So he shows up and says, Zacchaeus, this isn't, you come down from here like we sing in the song. This is so gracious. He literally calls Zacchaeus by name. I want you to hear this. This is the worst of the worst. You could not be worse than Zacchaeus was. And this is what he does. So there is no one outside God's love and grace and invitation. I want you to hear that. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, what secrets you have, you could not be worse than this guy was. 
In fact, the reason we know it, because it says this, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people, not some of the people, verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter. That's every single one of them. They hate this guy. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. That is true. Because remember, there's only two categories of people. Good people, that's God and Jesus and everybody else. But Zacchaeus is at the top of that list and they can't believe it. Now watch Zacchaeus' response. Remember, the first guy with all the, the money and influence in the world and influence turns his back and walks away from the kingdom. Now watch what Zacchaeus does. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Not a whole, not a hundred percent, like the other guy was done. He gives half of his possessions to the poor. This is how much I should keep. This is what I should do. So he's half of his possessions. That's not money. That's things. He's giving it all away, right? Half of his possessions to, again, notice it, not to the church, not to unite away, but to the poor, right? And I have cheated, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will give payback four times the amount. So I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make this right. So now I'm going to give it all back. It's all yours anyway, Jesus. I'm going to give half of it back to the poor, and then I'm going to go make things right. Watch what verse 9 says. Today, today, not tomorrow, not the next day. Today, salvation, meaning this guy is made right in the kingdom. Salvation has come to this house. Pay attention to that word house. Really, really beautiful. What God does not just to restore a human being, but to restore their family. You see, this is what Jesus does. Jesus reaches in. I love this when you see, I almost can guarantee you, when you see a man's heart get gripped by the gospel and the kingdom of God, it is nearly impossible for those dominoes not to knock through the whole family. Today, salvation has come to this house because, because this man too, is a son of Abraham. That's pointing to the covenant that thousands or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, God has said, there's nothing you can do to stop me from saving my people. There's nothing you could ever do to make me love you any less. You can mess it up. All, there are no stipulations. I will redeem you. And here's the evidence that I'm redeeming Zacchaeus here. So you go, okay. Well, why was he saved? Was it because he gave half? What if he only gives a third? What if he only gives a third of his possessions? Does Jesus give him salvation? What if it's 40%? I mean, is 50 the number? Like, how much, how much should he give? And you've got to figure that out, right? It has nothing to do with what he gave. He could have given 10%. Let me point to you what, where salvation comes from. Verse 8, see it again? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the who? Lord. Now, how does he re- respond to Jesus? Look, Lord. You want to know why he got salvation? That's it. So how much he gave? He's going, I don't know how much to keep. Half, maybe? Well, I still got to make restitution. I got to figure out how to continue to participate in the kingdom. I got to figure out all that stuff. So how much, so this wasn't about how much should I give. It's how much should you keep? And he's responding there. But the reason that salvation came to his house has nothing to do with the check he wrote. You cannot pay the price of the kingdom, right? Something transformative happened in Zacchaeus' mind. And in this moment, he doesn't see Jesus as a good teacher. He sees him as Lord, meaning, okay, God, now I understand. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom by you, which you dwell and you invite people in. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. And that upon which everything that, uh, that, that stands in opposition to it. Right? There are only two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and there's everything that stands in opposition to it. So Zacchaeus is going, well, everything I have, it's not for me. I don't have a kingdom. And I'm not going to stand in opposition to you. So he's literally going, Lord, what he's doing here is he's stepping over into the kingdom. And guess what he's bringing with him into the kingdom? Everything God's entrusted him with. And so he's going, I guess all this belongs to you. I guess all of this belongs to you. I guess this is, this is what you want, Jesus. So he's literally going, there's a new behavior, right? I have a thought. This stuff doesn't satisfy. I have a belief, but Jesus in this kingdom does. So therefore, I have new behaviors, which means I'm stepping in the kingdom, and all the resources I bring into me, they're no longer my treasure, because my treasure is the kingdom. This is the way by which I get to participate in the kingdom, right? So this isn't about a percentage. This is going, I don't know how much to give, but I got to figure out how much to keep. Now, there is one thing I want to point out real quick here. One of the things that gets really wrong in, in the church is there's this idea of what's called the prosperity gospel. You know, the word of faith stuff. You, you sow a seed, you get money. Like give God $10 a day, $100 will end up in an envelope. And people will share their stories and some of that stuff happens. But it's a, it's a really broken way to convince people to trust God with their money, right? And so even I can tell you, Malachi, Jesus says, test, God says, test me on this and see if I don't open up the floodgates of heaven. That's all really true. Right? When you trust God with the kingdom stuff, you see that stuff. But to tell you, you give a certain amount and you get another amount back, no, no televangelists, and when they tell you that, what they're telling you is not true. And so, as a result of this prosperity gospel, there's this overcorrection to what's called the poverty gospel, which means, uh-oh, it's the first Sunday of the month. It's birthday Sunday in Kids Zone. How in the world can we give those kids cupcakes? Because people in Africa don't get cupcakes. 
right? Wait, wait, we're giving our kids snacks, goldfish? That money can be used in a different way, right? You get this, this complication, this overcorrection of the poverty gospel. And here's just the one thing I'd say. As a father who tries to be good, if I give my child a bike, you know what I want them to do with that bike? Ride it and enjoy it. Not sit in the garage and go, my neighbor doesn't have a bike. Woe is me, I can never do that. No, he wants us to enjoy the things he gives us. He is a good father and he wants us to see how those things can be used for the kingdom, right? And so you see what happens next. You see what his goal is. Verse 10, it says this. He gives us an understanding of what just happened with Zacchaeus. He says, for the son of man came to seek and do what? Save that which was lost. So he's going, listen, there is a reason for the resources that you have given. You've been given. And here's the resource. Here's the reason. There is a world that has no idea I love them. There's a world that needs their physical needs met. They need clothing, they need shelter, and they need food so that we can then point them to a good and gracious father. And guess what? All the poverty in the world, God has given us all the, all the resources we need to solve it. All the epidemics in terms of healthcare in the world, God has given us all the resources right now we need to solve it. They just have to be redistributed. Right? And you go, and he even tells us the reason he's so gracious and generous to us is so we can be gracious and generous to other people. So the first question is not why do I, how much should I give, but instead, why, how much should we keep? And here's the second question what we focus on so much is why don't I have what I don't have instead of asking the question, why has God given what he's given? And so immediately after Jesus says this to Zacchaeus, I know this is running along, but I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. And immediately after saying this to Zacchaeus, he then gives this really beautiful teaching on stewardship. And sometimes you'll see it, parable of talents. This one's a little different. It's called the parable of the 10 minus. And so what happens in this is he, uh, he tells a story and in every parable or fable, what you see is someone who represents God and Jesus is someone who represents us. And this story Jesus tells, he says, there is a guy who's about to become king, goes to become king. That represents Jesus. And there's a bunch of people who are gonna be entrusted with stuff. That represents us, right? And so in the story, this king who represents Jesus, or soon to be king, entrusts his people while he goes to become, become king. So he goes off and he gives 10 different people what's called 10 minas. Minas about four to $500, so 4,500 per person. He gives them money and says, do something good in the kingdom with it, right? So he goes off and then he comes back. And then he has these people give a report. The first one comes up and says, hey, you gave me five grand. I turned that five grand into 10 grand. And the king, representing Jesus, goes, good job. You've been entrusted with little. You've done good stuff with it. So guess what he does then? He entrusts them not with 10 more, 10, you know, more minas, not five grand. He entrusts this person with 10 cities. He's going, I'm going to give you the influence of the city and 10 cities, the whole region. The same thing happened with the five. The same thing happened with one. These folks who were given something because God gave it to them for the sake of investment in the kingdom, sake of stewardship, they do good things. And then he comes to the one who doesn't do good stuff with it. And I just want to read this to you, and it makes me so uncomfortable to read. But as a pastor who loves, your pastor who loves you deeply, I think it's really, really important. So let me read you Luke's words, quoting Jesus. Verse 20, then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it and laid away in a piece of cloth. I was, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Verse 23, why then didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. So you see this. And I used to teach this wrong. I think I used to go, first thing I think this guy got wrong is he saw Jesus as a hard man and Jesus isn't a hard man. You gotta know that. I think I'm wrong, guys. I think Jesus is a hard man here. I think he surveys our world and sees 7 billion people who he loves immeasurably the same way he loves us who he's entrusted with us as the resources to get to the ends of the world, get the gospel to the ends of the world, get the Bible to the ends of the world, meet the needs of the impoverished to the ends of the world. And he looks at it and says, the same way I love you, I love them. How dare us not use the resources that have been entrusted us for the sake of the kingdom. And so he's saying, either you've been given these things, why have you been given these things? So that you can use and steward them for the sake of the kingdom and to enjoy, but by the way, you will never enjoy your things, your car, your house, your family, your job, unless you see them as a resource that God has given you for the kingdom. You'll just never enjoy it. You'll just never enjoy it. You'll never enjoy it. So he's going, in this moment, he's going, do you not see that the reason you have these things is for you to enjoy and the best way you're gonna enjoy them is to see them as tools for the kingdom. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. Take away that one, give it to the one who has 10. And they're going to go, wait, that's poor stewardship. That guy already has too much. Watch what it says here. 
Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as the one, for the one who has nothing, even that will be taken away. He's going, no, no, this is about stewardship. I'm going to continue to invest and give to those who use it for the kingdom. So you want more? Use it for the kingdom. The reason I think God continues to do great stuff here is we're going, how, do we be a good, how can we be a good steward of all that God's entrusted us with? But I want to read you this last verse. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is a parable. This isn't Jesus stabbing someone with a sword, but this is him holding and putting the weight of this in front of us and going, there are two kingdoms. There are those people who participate and live in the kingdom, those who enjoy the kingdom, those who use the resource for the kingdom, and those who stand in opposition to it. And if you stand in opposition to the kingdom, then Jesus and the kingdom are at war with you. So this whole idea is going, God has given me a bunch of stuff because he wants me to use it for my enjoyment and for the sake of the kingdom. So therefore, how do I steward this stuff in a way that takes this good news and this kingdom to the ends of the earth? And so here's the definition. The band's gonna come up. I want you to know this. And this is what contentment is. Contentment is this. Contentment is if God has not given it to you yet, there's a really good reason for it. It's because you don't need it. If God has not given it to you yet, it's because you don't need it. But here's the, here's the flip side of that. If God has given it to you, it's because he wants you to use it for his kingdom. Whatever, so there becomes this response in us to go, okay, how do we do an inventory of what God has entrusted us with and how do we use it in a way that we enjoy it and declare the good news and meet the needs of those around us? And so the way by which you do that is you start foundationally by going, the reality is all that we need is Christ and everything else is God's grace to us. So can we say, as Christians, you're not a Christian, you're welcome to spectate, wrestle through this, keep thinking about it as a Christian. Can we say, Christ is enough for us. Christ is enough. And so we're going to sing this song, trying to declare this, and may these words become true in our heart. So would you stand with me as we sing?